that was a good word. That, uh, thank you, Sanctuary Choir. I, I came thinking I was going to hear one thing with oh, what, what Wondrous Love, and this was a new interpretation for me. I love Larson's version. Thank you for that. I heard that in a whole new way. Well, good morning again. As Reverend Mona was um, leading us through the invocation this morning, excerpts from Psalms 29, she was, I wondered if you all who have been through hurricanes in Houston had any ambivalence about us bringing those memories into this space. Uh, I remember talking with my friend Mark after Hurricane Katrina. He grew up in past Christiane, Mississippi. You've been through it if you've driven past New Orleans and on to Florida. Uh, he described to me the beautiful house his mama and daddy had built there and how proud mama was of the live oaks and the azaleas and the camellias that surrounded uh, their beautiful retirement home. But Katrina, of course, had blown all of that away. Mama had gone to Jackson, Mississippi to stay with his sister and I said, well Mark, what do you think? What, what will she do? Will she rebuild? And he said, Harry, it's hard to say. All that's left is a concrete slab and a bunch of stumps. And then he remembered who he was talking to, <laughs> that he was talking to a minister and he said, you know, it's hard to call anything that looks like that an act of God. He's right about that. In every generation, we wrestle anew with the understanding that the all-powerful creator has the capacity to do pretty much whatever God wants. And most days, like the psalmist, about the best we can hope for and pray for is that God will use that power to bless us with peace. But I believe we can hope for more than that from God. Our text from Isaiah has been understood by the church through the centuries as a prophecy of Messiah's coming, primarily because after he got here, Jesus referenced the passage many times in describing himself to others. But what stood out for me as I studied this week was what the scholars call, well, what I was looking at in this passage is the, uh, the servant song of Isaiah. What stood out for me was that what they call the, song, the servant song doesn't just describe Jesus, but it also describes God who sent Jesus to us. Isaiah speaks for God when he says, This is my servant who I support and love. I have put something of myself in this person. I have put my spirit in him. Well, now that's something. Jesus is like us, but Jesus is like God, too. Christ is infused with that aspect of God that the Hebrew and Greek texts almost always use feminine words to describe. The spirit. The part of God that educates and encourages and empowers us. The ancient texts almost always use feminine phrases to talk about. Spirit. God says, I have put my spirit within my servant who will bring justice to the nations. So apparently doing justice 
requires deep spirituality. There's a reason why we ask you to come to classes on Wednesday evening and think about creating a life that matters. Doing justice requires deep spirituality. It's the sense of connection to the power of God that equips us to bring justice to the nations when we do it well. Justice to the nations. Now what does that mean? I think we think we know what it means. Every four years, lots of people tell us what it means. Every time somebody runs for attorney general or sheriff, right? I'm all for justice. Throw them in the jail, lock the door, throw away the key, right? That's what we think of as justice. We talk about justice in church a lot of times, and for some people, it's jarring language because they've heard that word used against them in ways that didn't feel compassionate, caring, loving, community-oriented. But what is God's justice? God's justice is the justice of a loving parent or an aunt or an uncle. More interested in getting a child out of prison and back on a responsible road than in closing that barred door forever. That's God's justice. God's justice comes not with shouts or threats, but with tireless persistence born of love. God's justice goes down to the prison for the weekly visit. I am the creator, God says, and I have called you in righteousness, but I've also taken you by the hand so that you may be a light to the nations, a light, an illumination. If we're not careful, particularly when Isaiah and Matthew provide our texts, we can fall into the trap of making everything light sound good and everything dark sound bad. Both books are full of light versus darkness imagery. And when talked about by a Caucasian man to African Americans and Latinas, sometimes it can come off in ways that are not intended. What we're talking about here is light that means illumination and darkness as in an inability to see or to discern. Being dark can be wonderful. The poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar took me by the hand as a young white boy in South Georgia when I first heard his line, she walks in beauty like the night. Changed me. How often I cannot begin to tell you, people of color have gently taken me by the hand to lead me a step or two out of the prison of racism that might otherwise bind us both. Now, I wish that people of color didn't have that responsibility, and it is my responsibility to walk on my own, not to be led all the time. But just as I have to gently lead some other people to understand how their words and actions hurt me as a gay man, how grateful I am for the love that allows my darker-skinned friends to be patient with me. 
God's justice takes us by the hand. Thanks be to God. There are times when the beloved community, the reign of God, seems completely unattainable. Considering how far we have to go and how much needs to change, I'm grateful for this word from the scriptures today. The journey is accomplished a step at a time. And as we learn to walk on our own, the God of loving justice is still holding our hand. And as we walk and talk, it seems to me, slowly but surely, that the old things are passing by. And new things keep springing up all around. John the Baptist thought he had things pretty clear in his mind. John the Baptist would have run for attorney general. You could have counted on him. He'd have been your candidate, right? He was certain he knew what justice and righteousness were, and he served both faithfully in obedience to God. He had put it all on the line in a call to his neighbors to repent and be saved. And he spoke truth. There was much from which they needed to turn away in order to live healthfully and in peace with their neighbors. But that good man who had led courageously and effectively, had one more lesson to learn and to teach us. He didn't come up with it in his own mind. Jesus had to lead him by the hand a little. When Jesus showed up at John's preaching mission on the Jordan and got in line to be baptized, John refused to do it. John had the gift of inner sight. He knew who Jesus was when he saw him child of God, inspired co-creator of the universe and companion of the spirit of wisdom and courage. How could it be that Jesus would humble himself in the way John had called all those others to lay down ego and status and attachment to the things of this world, to die to self when Jesus had done nothing wrong? Jesus said, this is how it is. This is how it's done. And as John baptized him, Christ began his ministry of pouring himself out, putting himself last, allowing himself to be put down in order that we might find our way to a life worth living. To the powerful, this is a hard word. We hear it over and over again in the Bible, sacrifice of privilege as the way to true community. It's a hard word. But it's also a hard word for those who constantly pour themselves out for others. The line between self-giving and self-abuse is a fine one. Hard to discern sometimes. But don't you know in your body and in your soul when you have crossed the line or when that line has been crossed? It is particularly hard when you have no choice. When someone forces you to do something and then tells you it's your duty. That's abuse, plain and simple. Not self-giving of any kind. When Jesus went down to the Jordan to be baptized, he went in the fullness of all the power that was his as the child of God. 
Christ's sovereignty would have allowed him a different route, the king's highway. He could have stood in all his maleness, all his sovereignty, and walked on the high road. But what Jesus chose to do was to take the narrow little path off the main road down to the river. At a word, he could have made the Jordan fill the valley, washed everything away. Instead, he decided to take a dip in the little gentle eddies at the shore. To me, the power of the moment is not in its magnificence, the dove and God speaking and all of that business. The power of it is in its simplicity. In Jesus, we see someone who knows who he is, who chooses to humble himself in order to lead. By being baptized, Jesus doesn't reduce his divinity. He makes vulnerability self-chosen, given vulnerability divine. To the powerful, Jesus says here, take my hand. Let me show you how to truly lead. To the powerless, <laughs> Jesus also offers the hand of love. Come with me down to the river. I've been there before. Let me show you how you can shine. Even with wet hair and water in your eyes. And down through the ages comes the voice of God. Yes. This is my child. This is how it's done. This makes me glad. 